Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons. Today, my guest is the Secretary of Economic Development in Massachusetts, Yvonne Howe. Prior to serving in her current role, Yvonne was a management consultant, corporate executive, private equity operating partner, venture capitalist, and board member. She's worked across a range of industries with leadership roles at Honeywell, Denon & Morantz, Gymboree, and PillPack, many of which were during her eight years of working as an operating partner with Bain Capital. Yvonne also co-founded a venture capital firm and a private equity firm. She has served on the board of directors of Car Gurus, Flywire, ZipRecruiter, Verta, and Bose, as well as on the board of Beth Israel Leahy Health. She has served as a trustee of Williams College and a member of the Commission on Presidential Debates, and she is a 2019 Aspen Fellow. Yvonne earned her bachelor's degree in economics and Asian studies from Williams College and a master of philosophy in development and economics from England's Cambridge University. Yvonne, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've been up to. It's been a long time since we've talked, much longer time since we worked together at McKinsey. So it's good to reconnect. Let's start with your current work. Give us an overview of the work you're doing as Secretary of Economic Development for the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, no, it's a very unexpected career twist, very much a surprise and an honor and a privilege. So I am the Secretary of Economic Development for the state of Massachusetts. My boss is the governor. I'm a cabinet member. But more importantly, I have responsibility really to make sure that all of our 7 million people who live in Massachusetts have great career opportunities and great career paths and live great lives in Massachusetts. And also that every company can have a chance to start here, stay here, expand here and thrive here and be world leaders here in Massachusetts. So that's really the goal. And I'm about six months and a couple of weeks into the job and learning a ton and also have a lot of work to do. So we have real work to to go after. So very excited to be in this role. You'd had obviously a very successful business career. You were on boards, you co-founded a venture capital firm and a private equity firm. So what was it that prompted the jump into public service? It's actually very random. I had not thought I would have a career in government. And I randomly received a phone call the week before Christmas on my cell phone. And I did not recognize the number. And I picked it up. And you know, the person on the line said, hi, it's Maura Healy. And I literally thought it was a robo-dial like, yeah. fundraising thing. So I kind of said, hello. And I was waiting for it to ask me for money. And it said, no, this is Maura Healy. Is this Yvonne? And I said, yes. Yeah, so this is clearly not a robo-dial. And she said, I got elected last month. And I said, yep, I'm aware. Congratulations. I voted for you. I'm very excited for your new administration. And she said, yeah, and we're getting inaugurated in early January, trying to build out the team. And I want someone with your kind of business background and your name has come up from several people that I trust. Would you be interested in talking to us about a potential role? Hmm. And the very next day I had lunch with her and the lieutenant governor. And then I got a 
the job offer the first week of January, and then I got sworn in on January 17th, and here I am. So very, very, very random. So you've been at it six months, a little more at this point. What's your experience been so far? What surprised you most about working in government relative to private sector? There are many things that are the same, and then there's some things that are really different. But, but probably the most funny surprise is that I didn't really expect people to call me secretary all the time. So I am still not used to people calling me secretary how or madam secretary or secretary and addressing me like that. That's really quite odd. And I'm not sure I'll ever get used to that. I also haven't worn suits since the 90s. So McKinsey, I think, went business casual and then Bain Capital was kind of business casual. And then I was at a startup, which was jeans and sneakers and hoodies. So this has been a return to my very early days of working and wearing suits again. So those are kind of funny surprises. I would say that I've had some very happy surprises. I think we have some really awesome people. We're very lucky in Massachusetts. We have really smart, really talented, very hardworking young people who don't get paid very much money and who work really because they believe in the mission. And so that's been an awesome, really happy surprise. And I do think a lot of the things are similar in that you're trying to figure out what does success look like? Where are we trying to go? What's that vision of the North Star? And then where are we today? And what are the couple of things that really matter to get us there? And then how do we get a team aligned around that? How do we get the right metrics and the right accountability and the right tracking? And how do we make sure we execute and communicate what we're doing? So those things are all similar. I think one of the other really big differences, though, is that in the private sector, I'm realizing we had the real luxury of having a much simpler governance and decision-making process. You have a board, you have a CEO, but it's a much clearer line and much easier to figure out who owns the decision. And once you make it, it's quick and then you can kind of go execute, especially in a startup where you're very nimble and you're moving all the time. Here, the decision-making is much more complicated and much more spread out. We have a state legislature, there's a Senate, there's a House. There are many other cabinet agencies, my colleagues, and then the governor, lieutenant governor, and then you have all the other parts of state government, and then you have the federal government, and you have the federal delegation, and then you have all the towns and cities and city councils. And so it's just a much more complicated and diffuse process. And I think the other thing that's different is that in a company, it's very clear you're trying to really increase shareholder value. So that's about growing top line, growing your profit. It's about making sure you understand your cash flow and ultimately growing your valuation or your market cap. So the metrics are pretty clear and again, pretty simple. Here, it's really hard to figure out what are the right metrics. It's probably not one metric. It's probably a set of metrics. So it's not just GDP, although GDP is very important, but it's also things like income inequality. And it's things like people's quality of life and how's that spread out by region or by different types of humans or different types of companies. And so it's just a much more complex set of things to try to figure out how we measure and how to get good data and good tracking to know that you're making progress. So, so some similarities, some differences, but I'm learning a ton. Well, it's, it's complicated. I can imagine having never worked in government, you have, as you mentioned, lots of stakeholders, many different types of constituents. It's a multidimensional thing that you're solving for, as you were just saying, it's not just GDP or GDP yep. growth. It's also about a number of other factors as well. And that makes it in many ways, a lot more complicated than running a company. Yes. But the real reason I took the job was I love businesses, but the things that I'm most proud of in business is how we've impacted people's lives, Mm -hmm. whether that's through helping our customers or really helping employees gain success and have great career paths and, and working on a team to really accomplish something. In a company, you can do that and you do have impact, but it's on a very limited scale. It's kind of who your customers are and who your employees are. 
here you have a much broader landscape to play with. So there's 7 million people and it's almost $600 billion of GDP. And so the potential for impact is much broader and bigger. The challenge is that it's slower and harder to have that impact. But if you yeah. can make a difference, it's across a much bigger scope of folks. So what are your, some of your priorities? So in Massachusetts, we are very lucky. We're a very well-governed state. We've had Republicans, we've had Democrats, but in general, people are reasonable and we have good governance, good balance sheet, all of those things. One of the smart things we have in place is that we have a piece of legislation that's written that once every four years, we have to do a formal state economic development plan. So it's basically like a strategy for the state. And mm -hmm. so we are in that year right now. So we kicked it off. We have an economic development planning council with a broad variety of folks who are on it. We have done nine sessions across the state in every different region, open to the public. And we've had all kinds of folks. Each session has had about 150 people show up. Mm. And in Boston, we had almost 250 people show up. So we've had a lot of people come and give us their ideas and their input. And then we've done sector-specific meetings with people from each of the different sectors, whether that's small businesses or rural communities or tourism or healthcare and hospitals or financial services or life sciences. And so we've looked at different sectors. And so we're midway through the year and we are deep in the sausage making of putting that plan together. And that yeah. will be published by the end of the calendar year. And then on the back of that, we need to bring it to life with funding and resources and all that. So that's a big focus for the year. But in the meantime, we're also trying to get a lot of other things done. We're not waiting for plans. So other important priorities include things like we are actively working on big federal opportunities. So in the U.S. right now, it's a unique moment in time where our federal government is really implementing a concerted national industrial policy. And as part of that, there are a lot of federal monies available for states to compete on for different areas. And so Massachusetts wants to do our part. So we're actively trying to coordinate and make sure we put our best resources forward to help the U.S. on areas like chips and science for semiconductors and defense, or areas like ARPA-H for healthcare. And, and many other areas. So we are actively working on that. And then the other thing is that there are a lot of other kind of near-term initiatives that we are coordinating on, including things like making sure our workforce pipeline is mapped to our highest growth industries, including things like working with companies to make sure that they're getting the help they need to stay here and expand here, including things like partnering with other cabinet members to help shepherd large projects and get those accelerated. So lots of different other initiatives, things like tourism, we're celebrating our 250th anniversary of the founding of the country, which actually started here in Massachusetts. So getting started on the planning of all that. So there's a lot of other things we're doing in the meantime. And then really, it'll culminate with this plan at the end of the year. So other than all the sessions, the planning work you're doing, what are some of the other ways that you spend your time in the role? Well, I would say this job is interesting. There's a lot of parts of this job that are very externally facing, probably more so than in a company role. So I do spend a lot of time going out to communities and meeting with chambers of commerce and regional economic development teams, going to all kinds of industry association meetings. And really, it's a chance for me to hear directly from communities on what are their issues, what feedback do they have, and then for me to just share with them how we're thinking about things. I do do a bunch of things that are public with the press and media, again, for similar reasons. And then I spend a lot of time trying to meet one-on-one -on -one with CEOs of small companies and big companies. And then I work with collaborating with my cabinet members and then with my own team to make sure that we're making progress in all of our different programs. So a mix of different things, but probably compared to a private sector job, this is a little more public facing than probably most CEO or CEO or CFO jobs. Which is understandable. I mean, essentially yeah. you're trying to attract business and keep business in the state, right? So there's a 
heavy components. It's a sales type role if you really want to think about it. Yeah, no, and I always say that. So the thing I think that is important for us to always remember, and I say this a lot here within the state, which is that I have no experience in state government, but I have a lot of years in business. And when you're running a business, as you know, JR, you wake up every day and you're maniacally focused on your customers and on your products and your employees and your shareholders and your technology. That's what you should be doing. You don't wake up every day in your job if you're here and say, oh, wait, what am I going to do today to help Massachusetts? Like, how am I going to help the state today? That's not your job as the CEO, and it shouldn't be. But our job in the state is to figure out how do we make sure we do all the right things to create the right environment and the right support systems so that these companies want to stay here and they want to expand here and it's the right thing for them to do and, and we help them succeed here. And so that's really our job. So I view all of the companies and all of the talent in our state as really our customers. And I am selling to them. I'm trying to make sure we put the best case forward and do all the right things with our resources and how to make sure they can be successful. If they're successful, our state's successful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to the beginning of your career. So you went to Williams undergrad, then you went to Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up in management consulting and McKinsey in particular? Well, I um, was a classic liberal arts student, didn't know what I wanted to do, and then won a scholarship to England. So I thought, oh, great, I'm going to go become an academic. I'm going to go become a professor. I know what they do, and I love my teachers, and this will be great. So I went and did my master's degree on this awesome fellowship, and I do love economics, but I realized that being an academic actually is quite lonely and isolating in a lot of ways. And I'm a big team sports person. I was a very short walk-on rower at Williams College, and some of my best memories and so much of what I've learned about life, I've learned through being on a team sport. And so I realized academia is hard. It's very lonely in a lot of ways. And also I learned about myself that I'm pretty impatient. I like to do something and then see the impact. That's kind of mm-hmm. the, the instant gratification reward. In academia, you do have impact, but it's still much longer. You know, you write a paper, you present the paper, maybe someone will do something with the paper. And so it's a much less direct impact. And so I finished my master's and McKinsey had been recruiting me when I was at Williams and I kept in touch with me when I was at Cambridge. And I thought, you know what, let me just take a break before I go back and finish the doctorate. I'll take a break, earn some money, try out this business thing, and then go back in a couple of years or something. So I tried McKinsey and then I realized, oh, I actually really love business because it's a, the ultimate team sport. You're working with people trying to accomplish something bigger than yourself. And it does have the benefit of having this much more direct correlation and instant impact. You make a decision, we try something out, and then you can see if it works or not. Did sales increase? Did profits increase? Did we get more customers? So you can kind of see the direct line between your work and what's happening in real life. I think that's very satisfying. You've done a lot of different things, and we'll get to that. But how did McKinsey prepare you for those subsequent roles? I think McKinsey is an amazing education in broad kind of business skills. I don't have an MBA. So I went to get my master's in economics. So I don't have an MBA. And because McKinsey's only product is its people, they invest so much in training and development. So I did a mini MBA course for a month before I even started. And then, as you know, McKinsey does a ton of training even after you start. So we had an orientation and training, and you get training at a year for a week, and then you get training at two years as you become an EM, an engagement manager, and as you become an associate partner and then a partner. And so I learned a ton from the training programs. And then you just learn a ton from being on the job. You get a crash course because you see multiple companies, multiple problems, multiple situations in a very short amount of time because you're doing this quick three or six month studies and you get exposed to a lot and you learn a ton on the job because the whole culture of McKinsey is all about feedback. So it's about getting exposure, really pushing yourself. It's a meritocracy and then getting lots and lots of feedback. So you're constantly you know, improving. So I learned a ton about business from McKinsey. Well, the other thing is 
it's an incredible network of people. I'm still in touch with all kinds of people from McKinsey, including you. Yeah. And so these relationships that you make there early on, and most people don't stay at McKinsey. So everyone goes knowing that most likely they're going to leave, but the friendships and the relationships you make really last a lifetime in business. So it's been really, a, to me, a huge gift that I started my career there. I just was asked to give a talk at the McKinsey Values Day here in Boston, which was crazy because when I was, was at McKinsey, I think the whole firm was a couple thousand people, the entire global firm. And now the Boston office by itself, I think is like 1,300 or 1,400 people, just the Boston office. They were asking me about some of the things that stuck with me. And I say, I, not a week goes by that I don't refer to something from McKinsey, whether that's obligation to dissent. Or yesterday, I said in a meeting that I wanted to see if something, this framework we're using was MISI, like mutually exclusive, yeah. collectively exhaustive. Like, I mean, the things that you get that get beaten into your brain at McKinsey stay with you, like some of the basic concepts and frameworks. It's very funny. Yeah, it's very true. I haven't used the expression MISI in a long time because nobody knows what it is typically, yeah. but other than the, the consultants. But yes. yeah, there are a lot of those things, as you say, that were definitely beat into our heads as we were coming up through the ranks. So yeah, for sure. I know you went to Honeywell. How did that all come to be? Well, I think for me, I got promoted to be an engagement manager and loved it and really felt like it was so much fun to be running a team and in the action of trying to solve the problem and work with the clients and make things happen. Then I got promoted to associate partner. And I realized that as you become more senior at McKinsey, less of your time is spent actually doing the problem solving and working with the clients and more time is spent on developing new business. and. I found that to be less fun. And the other thing is that for me, I got so excited about the impact we could have. And then the minute it got interesting, we would hand it off and we would leave and go to the next client. And so you never got to really see the project through. The other thing on the personal front is that, as you know, at McKinsey, we travel every single week and I was getting married and my then fiance and I were trying to figure out how we're going to have a lifestyle where I'm gone Monday through Thursday every week. Is that really the kind of married life we want to have? And just about that time, I got a phone call from a headhunter about Honeywell. And I thought, you know what? I'll go interview just for fun. And ended up interviewing with the CEO of all of Honeywell. I was 27 mm -hmm. years old and the CEO was running this 30 some billion dollar company. And he had been a very senior executive at General Electric. Right. And he pitched me on an opportunity to say, if you come to join me at Honeywell, you're going to be working with me and the senior team. You will learn a ton about what a real business is like because you'll have real exposure and you'll get to see through all of your strategies and see if you can really implement them and you will stay in one place. You don't have to travel. And so that really was a very appealing kind of value proposition. And so I left McKinsey to go join Honeywell and it was an awesome decision. I learned a ton from my time at Honeywell. Well, that headhunter call, I mean, as you say, you were 27, right? You get to work closely with the CEO of a big company. I mean, not many 27 year olds get that chance. Totally crazy. I look back now and the thing is, that was amazing about Honeywell is he was very true to his word. When I joined Honeywell, he was only maybe six months or so before me, maybe nine months before me. So he was new there and really leading a turnaround. And so when I joined Honeywell, the stock price was in the 20s. It was kind of tanked and not doing great. When I left five years later, it was in the 70s. And now it's been like in the 200s. It's been a dramatic, really impressive turnaround. And I was there on the ground floor of that. And so being able to learn from him and seeing how he led that company and then he was very true to his word. He gave me an opportunity to go out into a division. And at a very young age, I was running an almost $2 billion P&L. That was my first experience of kind of having full accountability and being like a mini CEO of a division right. at a super young age. I look back now, I'm like, how do they think I could possibly do that? I mean, I can't believe they trusted me to it, but I loved that job and I learned a ton and I'm still very close to my colleagues from that period. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's an amazing opportunity to get when you're relatively young and in a company that had that sort of GE linkage that a lot of people were sort of the diaspora of General Electric that was happening back yeah. in the 90s and early 2000s of people out to other industrial companies. I mean, it was and just a massive network that they had too. Yeah, I learned so much about the day-to-day operations of how you lead people and influence people and get folks aligned, how you drive change through organizations. I spent a ton of time visiting manufacturing plants. We made a lot of acquisitions. So how do you do integrations? We expanded into China and into Europe. So the global piece of things, and then really figuring out how do you manage a P&L and make sure you hit your numbers. I mean, there's a ton, and especially in a public company setting, I learned so much from my time at Honeywell. How did you end up at Bank Capital? So I'd been at Honeywell for a while, loved my job. And randomly got a recruiter call again. And I said, no, I'm not interested. I love my job at Honeywell. Thank you so much. I don't even know what bank capital is. Like, I don't know what this private equity stuff is, but not interested. And the recruiter said, look, you should really just at least talk to them. I promise you, you will find these people to be so smart and interesting, and you're going to get a whole nother skill set. So I said, no. And then one of the bank capital guys was going to be coincidentally in New York for a board meeting and said, could you could I have dinner with them just to learn more about bank capital? Said, sure, I'll have dinner with someone. That's fine. So I remember we ate at this really fancy restaurant, 11 Madison Park. And we were the first table at 5.30 PM. And then I think we were the last table to leave at like midnight. And um, he was really so thoughtful and smart and explained to me how private equity works and what the bank capital role would be like. And the things that were appealing to me about it, number one is that I loved being at Honeywell and I loved kind of the rigor and discipline of being in a public company. But you live and die by your quarterly earnings. And it's in many ways, it's very short termist. And the appealing thing about going to bank capital is you have a company that you buy out and it's no longer public. You now have a three-year, five-year time frame to think about what are the things we need to do to make this worth much more when we exit. So you have the luxury of thinking much bigger and having ability to really make change. That was very appealing. The other thing was that I did not have an MBA. I knew a lot about strategy and marketing, but I wasn't a finance expert. And the idea of going to bank capital and learning about capital structure and balance sheet and how to think through liquidity and exits and having a board and an investor perspective, really different than being kind of heads down in a division running a business. So I thought I could learn a lot. And then the other thing is that the diversity, again, like what McKinsey has at bank capital, I'd be working across multiple companies, multiple industries. And at Honeywell, you kind of, when you're running a business, you are heads down 100% in one siloed industry. So it's very different. Then on the personal front, at Honeywell, I didn't travel every week, but it became really clear that the career path at Honeywell would be that I was running this division that was about one, you know, almost $2 billion, but my next promotion would be running a division that was, you know, $4 billion. And that might be in Arizona or it might be in Minnesota, it might be in Europe or it might be in Asia. And then after that, I'd run a $6 billion division that'd be somewhere else. And my husband and I went to high school together. And by then, you know, I had given birth to two girls. And the idea of moving every couple of years, I looked at the people ahead of me at Honeywell, very few of them had working spouses and they did move around a lot. And we wanted to make sure we both had careers and that we could have a stable family life. And at Bain Capital, I knew I'd travel a lot, but at least our family would be in one place. And Boston's a great place for my husband's career. So in a lot of ways, it made sense personally as well. Were you an operating partner the whole time there or did you start on the investing side? No, I was an operating partner, which so at Bank Capital, you have people who mostly do investments who are kind of driving, sourcing new deals and diligencing them and then closing them. And then you have folks on the operating side, which is involved in the diligence a lot of times, 
but then really responsible for the companies once you close a deal. And the two work hand in hand, but I was on the operating partner side. And what was unusual is that in two cases, we had companies that kind of got into some trouble and we needed to make some changes at this leadership level. So I went in as CEO of one of our companies for almost two years. And then I went in as COO for one of our companies for almost a year. And in those cases, I was actually kind of back in the operating world of running a company and then came back to Bank Capital after that was done and we hired permanent leadership. And did you have like a agreement with Bank Capital that you would only do things that were local to Boston so you didn't have to? No, no, no. I traveled. One of the companies I was CEO of was in Japan, headquartered in, in Tokyo. So that was a lot of travel and that was very, very, very difficult. One of the other companies, when I was COO of that company, was based in San Francisco. So a lot of red eyes. So I traveled. But the difference is that at Bain Capital, we owned the companies. And so I traveled to visit the companies, but I had some semblance of control over when I traveled, how I traveled. And at the end of the day, too, you're responsible for the companies, but there's a CEO and a team there. So not every crisis is hitting your phone first. It's usually going through the company first. Right. McKinsey is tough because you're traveling every week and it's client service. So when the mm-hmm. client wants you there, you kind of don't have the same control. So it's a little bit different. But yes, I did travel. I've traveled a lot in my life. And as you say, I mean, you do have a little bit more control than you do when you're at McKinsey and you're sort of at the client's mercy. And I think also just the internal pressure that existed at McKinsey yes. to be on site, to be available all the time was also a factor as well. You worked in a lot of different industries. I'm, I'm sure the McKinsey training helped you, but what else did you do to come up to speed when you parachuted into one of these situations? Well, I, you know, I always talk about how my liberal arts education at Williams has really come in handy because when you go to liberal arts school, you are not an expert in anything. So people ask me like, oh, are you like an expert in finance or accounting or marketing? I'm not an expert in anything. But what you learn in liberal arts and also we learn at McKinsey and at Bain Capital is you learn kind of the important skills. You learn how to learn. You learn what things matter and what things are noise. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to prioritize. You learn how to analyze. So those are the important, you learn how to listen and you learn how to work together on things. So those are all the things that you learn. And then that helps you get up to speed really quickly because you, I've seen so many different companies and industries and situations. I have a lot of pattern recognition. So I'm really good at connecting the dots and saying, Hmm, this seems like these three other things I've seen. I kind of know how this movie is going to play out. There's things that we should be thinking about. So kind of that pattern recognition is very helpful. And so Whenever I go into a new situation, which I do all the time, I tend to focus on three main areas. One is I try to really spend time with people because the folks who are there already, they're the ones who are living in that world day to day. You're coming into the movie halfway through. They've been there since the beginning oftentimes, and you can learn a lot from talking to them about what things they care about, what things they think are issues. So I spend a lot of time with the team. That's number one. Number two is I spend a lot of time on just understanding the business model. So what are the numbers? How do they work? What things really matter? What things are really sensitive in the model. And if you do this, that's going to really have a big impact or what things don't have as much impact. So really understanding the actual, like, how do we make money? And what does this business look like? What's the profile of their financials? That's number two. And then number three, I really try to get as close as possible to the customers because every business and organization exists to serve a customer. Who are those customers? What are their problems? What do they care about? What do they like about you? What what do they not like about you? Who are the other people they're using instead of you? And so the closer you get to them, the more you have a better understanding of how to make decisions and, and having yeah. a true north of why you exist. So those are the three things I do to try to get up to speed quickly in new situations. Yeah. And then you went off to PillPack. That was not part of Bank Capital, right? That was separate. Yeah. yeah. So I've been at Bank Capital for a long time, like eight and a half years. And 
it's an incredible place. I learned so much. And again, I'm talking about network. I am still such a close friends and very much in touch with so many people from Bain Capital, including yesterday, I was on a panel with the current head of Bain Capital. It's an incredible place. I learned a lot, but I've been there for a long time. And I kind of started to think about, hmm, I kind of hit midlife. My mother-in-law had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which was very difficult. And we were dealing with all her medications. And you start to wonder like, gosh, like, if I stay here, this is an amazing place. And I'm learning so much. I'm so lucky to be there. But should I be thinking bigger about the impact I want to have? And then a friend introduced me to PillPack, to the CEO, this tiny little startup that no one ever heard of. And coincidentally, when I went to go meet with the CEO, he told me, oh, we sort people's medications so that they can take them on time and we deliver them to their house. Hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, like, I need this for my mother-in-law right now. And so I don't want to join your company. Like, why would I leave being capital doing this tiny little startup? But let me sign up my mother-in-law. And so we signed her up and it was a really life-changing service. And it was so obvious and it made our lives so much better to not have to worry about her pills. And so the more I talked to the CEO, the more impressed I was with him and this business and the It's a massive market that had not really had a lot of innovations at all. And I really truly believed in the mission because I personally was a beneficiary. And so over the course of many, many months of getting to know the company, I finally decided to make the leap. So I left Bain Capital, which is a very well-established, very prestigious place to go to a tiny startup no one ever heard of. I took a very large cut in my cash comp, traded it for equity, which luckily turned out to be a good decision. And then I went to go work for a CEO who was a decade younger than me and a pharmacist. And I joined as a CEO and CFO. So it didn't make a lot of sense on paper necessarily, but for me, it made a ton of sense because I really believed in the team. I really believed in the mission. I knew I would learn a ton. I'd never done a startup before. I'd never done healthcare before. And I knew I could contribute because they were growing 300% a year and they needed help figuring out how to scale a business. And I had, I'd worked in much bigger companies. And so it was an amazing decision. I had such an incredible experience at Pillpack. It was a really, really special thing. And luckily for us, we were able to pull a rabbit out of the hat and have this amazing outcome and sell to Amazon. So it was an amazing decision. Again, sometimes these conversations, they lead very slowly to something and it turns out to be in the long run, a great decision, great outcome for you personally. Yeah, no, it was awesome. And the most importantly, every single day I was at Pillpack, I was a CEO and CFO. Um, talking about customers, we would get feedback from customers. And a lot of it was you'd get notes from the call center. You'd also see the written email feedback. And people wrote in every day about how I'm alive because of Pillpack. I never took my mm. medicines on time before. And now for the first time, I am feeling healthy. And that makes a big difference. And the other thing is for us, every one of our employees had equity. So when we sold to Amazon, we had people who had taken a lot of risks to join Pillpack. And some of them had high school degrees and I'd been working at Walmart or McDonald's and they joined us and they were making $12 an hour to start, but they got some equity. When we sold to Amazon, people were able to really do well and they were able to buy cars or pay off debt or go on honeymoon. It was a big deal that for all of our employees, we could share in this value creation and reward them from all of their incredible work. So it was an awesome experience. You started serving on boards around that time as well, right? Well, I was on boards. I got very lucky. I joined my first board was a nonprofit board. I got asked to join the Williams board when I was 30. And that was a crazy experience because it was like all these CEOs of these major companies and organizations, and then me. So I learned a ton from them. And then at Bain Capital, I joined the boards of many of our portfolio companies. And in some cases, we took them public. So I got to be a public board member. And then I started joining boards separate from Bain Capital, and then have now been on a bunch of public company boards, private company boards, and also many other nonprofit boards. 
Having been an executive and a board member, how would you contrast the role of a board member relative to being a C-level leader? As with many things, I think that being intentional is very helpful. If you've been a CEO or a COO or CFO or senior level executive, you're used to running things. You're used to making decisions, calling the shots, being in the details, being front and center. And when you join a board, that is not the job of a good board member. And so if you aren't careful and you fall into the trap of being an operator, you will probably then be a bad board member. Mm-hmm. So it requires intentionality and you have to learn how to be a good board member. So it took me a while to adjust to it. And being a good board member is being a partner to the CEO and to the company. You have to hold them accountable and you have to challenge them. And ultimately, you're responsible for the company. But ultimately, you're there to try to support the company and the CEO and be a partner for them. And so the conversation I always have with CEOs is you have to have a board anyways, right? You can't not have a board. And I find if you're a CEO, you're usually a pretty ambitious person. And you're always going to be trying to have the best customers, the best product, the best employees. Why would you settle for a mediocre board? So if you have to have one anyways, why not make it awesome? And again, to make something awesome requires work and intentionality. And so thinking through really how you get the most out of your board is important. And as a board member, if you're joining a board just to make money, you shouldn't be on a board. Like you should be joining a board because you want to really contribute and be helpful. And so thinking through as a board member, what does this company need and how can I best work with them in a way that's supportive and helpful? That takes real work, but it's very rewarding. I really love being on boards and getting to partner with so many different CEOs and also with fellow board colleagues. It's a really rewarding it's another version of a team sport. How did it round out your skill set? I think you just get a totally different perspective. So when you're a board member, you start to realize you're coming in once every couple of months. You're not in the day-to-day. You can pull up from the all of the minutia and all the daily crisis kind of firefighting and really start to see the forest for the trees of what things really matter. That's an incredibly helpful perspective to have when you're an operator, to kind of be able to pull back and say, okay, put aside all the craziness. What are the things that really matter for this company that we should be focused on? And oftentimes are the things that are the most important, but not the most urgent. So having that perspective is hugely helpful. The other thing is, and especially if you serve on multiple boards, you get a lot of different perspectives on how different companies do things. And you start to, again, just see patterns and best practices that are super helpful. Like if you're only ever in one company, you never realize, oh, wait, why don't we do our talent assessment like that? Or how do we think about doing our budgeting process? So Many of these things are transferable. And once you have more data points, you can start to see what things really work and don't work. Yeah, that's very true. So you've been a leader, you've been a board member, you've been a venture capitalist, a private equity operating partner. You've seen leadership from a lot of different dimensions. What's your definition of leadership? I think less about leadership, or I think more about team. And my job as a leader, I always say to people is that I do some emails, I sit in meetings, I go to board things, whatever. But I'm not the one who's doing the hardest work every day. The people who are the most important in any organization or any business are the ones who are on the front line serving the customers every day. So at PillPath, those were our pharmacists, our technicians, our fulfillment center people, everybody kind of on the front lines of making the business happen. And so I would say to them, like, you're my customer. So my job as COO or CFO, or now here as Secretary of Economic Development, my job is to support you to make sure you do your jobs well and that you can be successful. And so it's really a servant leadership model. And it's around How do we make sure everyone feels empowered? Everyone feels recognized and valued and rewarded. Everybody understands where the business is at and the context and how they fit into it and what our goals are. How do you make sure everyone feels like they're part of something that's really worthwhile and that's bigger than themselves? That's really going to make a difference in the world. And how do you make people excited to be part of that, right? So that's really the job of a leader. And at the end of the day, I always say the CEO job is, it sounds simple and it is simple, but then doing it is really hard, which is just 
like I said in the beginning, how do you figure out where we want to go? How do you figure out where we are now? And what are the couple of things that are going to help get us there? So how do we kind of decide on that vision and that path? And then how do we make sure we get the right people to go execute on that and have ownership? And then how do we make sure we communicate and get alignment around metrics and then execute? And so sounds really simple, but the actual doing of that is much harder, of course, right? Of course. You've described servant leadership and talked about team at multiple points in the conversation. What have you done to create high-performance teams? This is all I focus on, really, because I've realized now over many different situations that the best way to be successful and also the most fun is to have people around you who are awesome and talented and smarter than me and who are diverse. You want people who are different from yourself. And having a more diverse team requires, again, intentionality. It doesn't happen on its own. You kind of left your own devices. You kind of get people who are just like you. But if you really work to get diverse perspectives, it is much harder. You have more miscommunications and more misunderstandings, but it's way more productive to have different ideas and different opinions and you get better outcomes when you're challenged. And then also it's way more fun. I find I learn so much more and I just enjoy it so much more. And so getting great teams together, that's the magic. If you have a great senior team working together well, then everything cascades from that. And the best teams are the ones that everyone brings on the table. You all know what your skills are and you all know where you need help. And really you trust each other and you disagree and you can fight, but then you get aligned and you're having fun together. You want to see each other win. I always say it's like when you can pass the ball without even looking, you know, that person's going to get the ball. It's an incredible. And as a rower, you can have all the best rowers in the world, but if you're not rowing in the same direction at the same time, it's very painful in a boat. You're like Mm. hitting each other. The boat's not moving. You could have less good players individually, but if you're rowers individually, but if you're in the boat rowing at the same time in the same speed, the boat just flies and it feels effortless and you're moving so fast. And that's what you aspire for in a team. Yeah. And that's a huge part of my job is figuring out how to create that team and having the right people in the right places working together in the right way. That's where the magic happens. When you look back on your career, what are the strengths that you've drawn on again and again? I am a very curious person. So that's helpful because I'm always trying to learn and improve. And I try really hard to not think I know the answer because most of the time I don't know the answer because most of the time I'm in a new situation. So yeah. I think curiosity is very helpful and just asking questions and being open to learning. I do love being on teams and really figuring out how we can work together well. I am a continuous improvement machine. So I always want feedback all the time and direct. And at almost every meeting I have at the end of the meeting, I always say to people, what can I do better? What can I do different? What feedback do you have for me of how I can help you? And so I'm always taking notes and every day is a new day to try to be a slightly better version of myself today than I was yesterday. And there's always work to do. So I'm just like everybody else. I'm a deeply flawed human. There's some things I do well, but there's lots of things I want to get better at. And so that's, I think, part of the fun and the journey. What are the things that you've worked on developing? So many. I am a very impatient person. I love to see things happen. So learning how to be more patient is not easy for me. So that's something I'm always working on. Maybe broaden my style a little bit. Like I'm kind of, let's move quickly, think big. And then there's people who want to be like, be much more methodical. And sometimes we need that. And so just thinking through all the different ways that I can round myself out more and kind of have a broader skill set. So there's lots and lots of things. What do you do to recharge your batteries? I really believe in this concept of the corporate athlete. So if you're going to be an Olympian, again, it requires intentionality. You don't just like wake up and become an Olympian. You have natural skills and natural kind of assets, but you want to be intentional. And so I have a whole system. So actually, this is probably one of my biggest strengths. I really reflect a lot on when do I feel good? When do I not feel good? What gives me energy? What sucks my will to live? 
I'm always kind of reflecting and trying to learn more about myself and about the world. And so I train like, so this job I'm in now requires a ton of energy and stamina. So I always try to sleep seven hours a night. I know for myself, there's a Maslow's hierarchy. If I don't sleep enough, then I am going to be really grumpy and short and unpleasant and not my best self. I always try to exercise every day, especially in this job, because I'm physically like out and about and meeting people all the time and I need to keep my energy up. And so I exercise almost every morning, even if it's a short amount of exercise. And it also and mentally just helps me to like not think about work and to clean my brain a little bit, to focus on something else. And then I also try to just like have time with family and friends and have time by myself reading. So all of those things are really important to have a system of how I think a lot about oscillating, like you train super hard, but then you have a rest day. And so like having this oscillation where like we work really hard and we have a crazy week, everybody should take the weekend off and just like mellow out, recover, rest, recharge, and come back Monday, like ready to go at it again. But you can't go hundred percent every day. No Olympian does that because you're going to burn out. You're going to get right. an injury. So right. thinking through your system is really important. Yeah, definitely. Last question. If you could give your younger self a piece of advice in terms of careers, how to manage the world of work, what would it be? There's this concept that I loved in Amazon that I had thought about before, but they coined a really easy way to describe it, which is that some things are one-way doors. When you go through the door, you can't come back. So there are those decisions. Those are very big life decisions. And you need to really spend time because the stakes are very high. But actually, the vast majority of decisions are two-way doors. You mm. go through the door, you don't like it, you can come right back. And so I think the mistake I made as a younger person is, amongst many other mistakes, is that when you're leaving McKinsey or leaving Honeywell or leaving Bank Capital, you think of every like career decision as like, oh my God, the world's going to end. If I make the wrong decision... I will never get another job again. And you realize once you get older and you see how big the world is, mm. most career decisions are two-way doors. If you leave McKinsey and you go to Honeywell and for some reason it sucked, I'll probably just go back to McKinsey or I can go back and get another job. And if I left Honeywell to go to Bank Capital and it sucked, I go back to Honeywell and go back and get another job. And so most career decisions, I think, are two-way doors. And I stress way, way too much over them as one-way doors. The only things I think in life that are really one-way doors are things that are really irreversible. And those are the only real... I don't have any real work regrets, but I have like personal regrets. Like I should have spent more time with my dad before he passed away. I should have spent more time with my grandmother before, both my grandmother before they passed away. And so those are one-way doors that you can't get back. And yeah. um, those are things I wish I'd spent more time on. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing this. I was thinking as we've been talking in a way, since you and I first met each other, you've kind of come full circle because we worked on the spin out of Skyworks, which is up I know. in Auburn. Every time I pass, when I'm back in Massachusetts and pass Skyworks, I think about our project. So you are so contributing fun. to the economic development of the state even back then. A million years ago. I love it. I totally forgot that. That's so funny. Yeah, that's so true. I love it. Well, I'm yeah. excited for this project and hopefully it helps other folks as they think about their careers, but looking forward to staying in touch on all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to do a better job of staying in touch with people than I have over the last however many years, but you know where to find me. I know where to find you, which is all good. So all right. Thank I will you so let much, you go. Sarah. Yeah. Chat more soon. Thanks. All Bye. Right. Take care. It was great having Yvonne on the show today and I appreciate her time. It's interesting to hear about her current work in public service for the state of Massachusetts, as well as her broader career journey, which has had many stops and twists and turns along the way and her thoughts on leadership as well. So thank you again, Yvonne, and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. 
This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.